Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad that you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Advent for Lectionary for Liturgical Year B. Our distinguished guests this week are the Reverend Dr. Aaron Kirby, who is the Rector at St. John's Episcopal Church in Marion, North Carolina, and the mom of an amazing adult daughter. She is a member of the Diocese of Western North Carolina's beloved community and racial reconciliation team. Having grown up in the mountains of Western North Carolina, she moved back as close to the land of her heart as she could get during COVID. In her free time, she and her dog Buttercup enjoy a good long hike or just a day splashing around a mountain stream. Dr. David O'Hara, who is a professor of religion, philosophy, classics, and environmental studies at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, where he is also the director of environmental studies and sustainability. He studies the diverse relationships between fish and forests, global water systems, and the way our beliefs take concrete form in what we build. He loves sharing books, tea, and the great outdoors with others, and especially with his wife, the Reverend Dr. Christina O'Hara. And last but not least, the Reverend Dr. Michelle Dayton, who lives in South Dakota and is the superintending presbyter of the nine churches on the Pine Ridge Reservation, serving the Ogallala Lakota Oyate. She is a daughter, wife, and mother of two amazing humans. Michelle loves to listen to the stories of God's beloveds, is passionate about being a storykeeper and spiritual director. She is learning to bead and planted her first vegetable garden this year. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being willing to be guests on the podcast. What do we need to keep in mind this year for Advent or Advent 4? Advent 4 this year is just a little awkward Mm -hmm. because it's Sunday morning and that makes it really difficult. It feels all compressed and kind of jam-packed. So we slide immediately from Advent 4 to boom, it's going to be Christmas Eve this afternoon. However, in general for Advent, I find it to be a season to wonder what God is interested in birthing in me and in my communities. Mm. So it's a time of anticipation, even though it feels really shrunken for Advent for. I did the strangeness of it. I mean, that happened a few years ago. And I spent a bunch of time in July thinking, what did I do the last time this happened? Because it wasn't that long ago. And I was at a different church then, you know, a different community and spending an inordinate amount of time trying to decide, well, will people come? Does it matter? (laughs) Should it be morning prayer or should it be Eucharist? I expect I have another seminarian, by the way, Shaniqua, so I'm really excited to just head up postulant come out of my church and do I make her come to all of them (laughs) 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 or do I give her a break and let her be with her family but mainly I think with Advent or how do we allow ourselves to be creatures of God and not creators of God Hmm. and how do we bring that into all of Advent but especially in this service and it's such an important service I think always has been. I love Advent 4. I feel a little robbed uh, by the fact that I know that probably 95% of my congregation will just wait and come Christmas Eve. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the 5% being the acolytes and my seminarian, who I am going to make come to all of them. So (laughs) Um, I think some of these things that you two are naming are things that we can name to our congregations as well. It can be hard for the laity to know how difficult it is for the clergy, especially when we have services stacked upon one another. So maybe not to add a burden to the clergy, but one of the challenges is to imagine that this might be really beautiful for the laity and not just think, oh, they might not come. Years ago, I was teaching in Greece and uh, took my students to a convent, an Orthodox convent. And one of the sisters there was explaining to my students what their prayer life was like and how they go to bed and then they wake up three hours later and meet in the chapel and pray and then go back to bed and then wake up three hours later and pray. And then they go to work and then they have breakfast and then they pray. And 
some of my students were going, what on earth? How do you do all that? And do you ever get any time off? The nun was, she was great. She said, time off from what? And her sense was that the liturgical life that she lives and that the hours of prayer are themselves time of rest. Hmm. And this year has been, actually the last couple of years, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but these last couple of years have been wearying. And these moments that we get to be together away from cell phones, away from the busyness of life and enter into prayer and listening to scripture and so on really can be wonderful. But I do think sometimes it's a helpful thing to remind other people in our congregations just how wonderful and restful they can be. What liturgical ideas do you have for Advent 4, especially since, you know, there's got to be greening of the church and all this kind of thing. Any liturgical ideas? So we are going to put up the greenery without any of the sparkly (laughs) Sunday before, which is what they kind of normally do. We're going to retain the ornaments from the Jesse tree and not put the Christmas ornaments up yet. And then after the Advent for service, which we're having earlier and just doing one service instead of the two that I normally do, the Advent for service is going to be morning prayer with Eucharist. Uh, So it's a little less on them, you know, and just a little bit more about peacefulness and quiet and being able to kind of lean into that, which, and I thank you, Dave, because that is so true. The uh, time off from what? Because that's what I was mourning is that, you know, nobody's going to come and it's so beautiful. But I was also thinking about, you know, my postulant, and it was a secular thought that she needs time away to be with her family for present buying and things like that and probably doesn't even want it. So thank you for that reflection. I needed to hear it. In my context, because I have five churches to be at, it will be a marathon day (laughs) is what it will be. And we're still sorting it out. And I'm just hoping that this year we won't have such a white Christmas that we have to cancel so many services and just show up on people's Facebook feeds, Mm. which is what we had to do last year because everybody was snowed in. No one could get to our churches. It is all about being flexible out here on the plains. I'll be curious to see what it ends up looking like because there are a number of youth who are planning on doing Christmas pageants and wondering how we're going to fit everything in. Christmas pageants make a great sermon, too, by the way. If you want to, like, cut some time, then you can. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the theme for Advent 4 is typically love. And that's one of those words that a lot of people use, but don't always know what they mean when they use it, or they don't always have a good definition. What does love mean to you? And who needs to hear that they are loved right now? In the middle of this horrible conflict in the Holy Land... I would certainly say all of our Palestinian and Jewish siblings need to be very clear on how much they're loved. And again, in my context, we have had so many deaths recently and this year that part of love is being present to the grief and being present to those who are missing at the table. Hmm. And The firsts when we lose someone are always the hardest, it seems. Mm -hmm. People don't know how to be. And holding space for that is a really critical aspect of love, especially in the season when there appear to be expectations that everybody ought to have a smile on their face and happy noises around them. And for many, that just won't be the case. Mm -hmm. I'm in the midst of a semester right now of teaching the history of European philosophy. And I always use this as an occasion to prompt my students to think about love. So the word philosophy comes from two words, the love of wisdom. What kind of love is that? What does that mean for us to love? What are we loving? Augustine's great question, what do I love when I love my God? 
love is everywhere and takes on so many different forms. So I often teach them the words in Greek or teach them the words in Latin and show them how hard it is to translate this word love from one language to another, from one culture to another. So Shaniqua, your question's a really good one. And I feel kind of funny, even though this is something I've been teaching about for a quarter of a century or more, I don't have a quick answer for it other than to say that it means so many things. To Michelle's point, we really are in some dark times and there are also some really bright lights, like infinite bright lights out there that God has set. And one of the things for us in Advent is to ask, where are those lights? Where are they coming from? To be like, not to leap too far ahead, beyond Advent and Christmas, but to be like those who are searching for a star in the sky. Hmm. Maybe at this time, we're not so much searching for a star, the bright light in the sky, but searching for it in all of those people that we're not inclined to love. I drove through downtown of our city about a week ago, and I was thinking about this and about these great noble ideas of love and Christian love. And St. Francis of Assisi was on my mind and, you know, hugging the leper. And you know the way Jesus does those annoying things? So many of them. As I was thinking this, I drive by this guy who plainly, you can just, I can tell several lanes away, hasn't showered for a long time, has all of his belongings on his back, looks dirty. And I feel like my one saving grace was that there there was so much traffic that I couldn't slow down. Why is it that when I look at that man, my first thought is how bad he smells? What does that say about me and my need for redemption and my need for the love of God to fill me, to wash away from me all of the things that are not love and to teach me how many more forms of love there are. Cool that I can name it four or five ways in dead languages. Now can I name it in one way in a living language? Hmm. It's hard. We've been kind of working through that as a congregation over the last few months, because I live in a, you know, sort of a community that in many ways is being ripped apart by the political landscape of our country. The vestry of my church and I have been working on, you know, how do we create sanctuary from all of this? Because we look towards the kingdom of God that Christ taught about. Uh, and not the one that so often and too often religion twists into another uh, in going along with these things. Hmm. And at the same time, uh, like of a lot of Episcopal churches, I have an older community and this big gap and then some really, really, really young ones and, you know, just a few in between. And when it's just me and one other person, I don't have five churches, so I feel like, I feel like I can't even complain. But when it's just me and one other person, and all of the other things that you do when you, you know, when you are expected to keep up with programming and all of that kind of stuff in a church, making sure that all of those people know that they are still part of the body of Christ and loved and visited and called and. Uh, just reminded weekly, if not daily, that we're here and the church isn't on this property, but it's in their house. Hmm. And so this story and this beauty of spirit and soul that those who are able can bring even into the tininess of their own community that spreads out. I always like telling people how, like, if I love them, the the way that it makes me feel, you know, like whenever I think about you, I smile or, you know, like that kind of a thing. And then in Lakota, one of the words is tichihila, which means like, I will endure for you or in sort of in a way I will suffer for you. And if we think about the things that Jesus did for us, that's kind of what happened. Or you could even say what God did for us, right? If God sent Jesus. What stands out for you in the reading from Second Samuel? Everything is not mine to do. Mm. And sometimes we have brainstorms and we want to say, oh, God, bless this great idea that I have, rather than the hard work of sitting and listening and being present and noticing what God is already doing and how can I join spirit 
and show up there instead of programmatizing, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Making something up, creating something that is not actually God's vision, which is, is so much the story of Jesus, isn't it? So much the story of our expectation of salvation and rescue and personal redemption by these amazing self-improvement programs of fixing our own mess and God's idea instead of a baby, right? And a peacemaker and someone who stirs things up and speaks truth to power. I don't remember where I learned this years ago that the reason why God did not want David to build the temple was that David had blood on his hands, that he was a warrior or something like that. And lately I've been wondering if maybe it's because David puts things in boxes. Hmm. You know, David manages to unify. He does these things that are celebrated. He brings together all of the descendants of Abraham violently, but he brings them all together and he conquers Jerusalem and puts his enemies to shame. And when he conquers Jerusalem, he receives this gift that allows him to build himself a great big palace. And maybe the real danger was that David would start to think about God as something that he could also put in a box, Hmm. that he could unify, that could be like his kingdom or like his power. Maybe there's a real danger that David would forget that God is God and lives beyond any kind of great cedar walls and timbers and beyond stone and fortifications, etc. It's nice to think of David, a man who lives in the city that he names after himself, (laughs) worshiping a God who is a pilgrim. David was just a smidge of a misogynist. (laughs) Just a smidge. Just a smidge. Just had some issues. And so perhaps this ties back. Maybe he did not really love well. Hmm. Maybe that was the point. Maybe he did not recognize the divine in others. And so perhaps that's a disqualifier. Hmm. Because if we don't recognize really God in one another, if we don't have that capacity for love, then maybe we don't really know God. I never learned what you just said about David, but my question back was, what need does the universe have for a house? Hmm. And I kind of love in Samuel the snarkiness about God, which is like, when did I ever say I wanted this to anybody when I was wandering with all of the people? And I always hear people kind of decry it, you know, and that's okay. Uh, The church is not the building. The church is the people. And that's true. Uh, But it's a nice touchstone. Hmm. And so maybe providing a space where people can come together and have together a holy moment. But you can do that in the wilderness. You can do that under a tree. You can, you know, I'm sure you have all known people that just don't feel like any place is holy unless it's inside that church building. Mm. You know, it's a struggle to get people to go on holy walks. Maybe two or three will do it, and then they feel like, ooh, is that something that we should have done? <laughs> but it also kind of really ties together in the, the sadness of our human desire to make certain places the ancestral home of our holiness. Hmm. And we see that, we are seeing that being played out in the most horrific way again and again and again, but in the, you know, what is called the Holy Land, but calling it the Holy Land, I think, is what causes it in one level. That this is the home of Christianity, this is the home of Judaism, this is the home of Islam, and it is the one and only home, and we all have to fight about it, Hmm. because we all own it, and it was given to us, and Samuel, uh, every single thing about David, every single thing from the end of Moses' death on is about the violence associated with desiring to place God in one place 
and to say we own it. And God's resistance to that every single time that people ignore in the scripture, but it's right there. It's hard to know what to do with that and how to preach it and at the same time say, come to church on Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we need each other and we need a place to feel special, but I think we have failed in every single religion to stress that it is not the place. Aaron, I think you've really touched on something important there, that it's not that building needs us to keep the building somehow. I mean, let it fall. But we need somehow to, because of our own finitude, perhaps, or our own sin, we need to dedicate ourselves to gathering together, to loving our neighbor, to breaking bread together, and so on. And the house happens to be a way that we can do that. I was starting to laugh when you were, you were talking about going on wilderness walks and thinking about what next is she going to start preaching that maybe we could encounter Jesus on the road to Emmaus or something? Yeah. <laughs> or riding in our chariot down to Ethiopia? Surely this cannot be. <laughs> well, I, you know, don't put it past me. <laughs> As I was reading this, I kept thinking a lot about like, you know, Lakota is being nomadic, right? We move around a lot and then the church being in one building in one spot and is a movable place better or worse than a a permanent one and as it's also you know we're recording this in indigenous people's heritage month and so i was thinking about that this piece about moving you know with climate change it's forcing a lot of people to move um you know you've got like whole communities in alaska where their village was one place and they had to move like four miles inland and now they have to move again and they thought that that move was going to be permanent or like you know people that are forced to migrate as refugees or immigrants because of either political reasons or for ecological reasons. What parallels do you see between this reading and that experience? I think remembering that life is journey and God is always journeying with us. Hmm. On the neighboring reservation, one of our churches was just burnt to the ground. Holy Innocence at Parmalee on the Rosebud. And I was over there with that congregation when um, Mother Lauren had prayers recently, there is such a sense of loss of that place. Yes, it's a human loss, but there is something about being in a place, a known touchstone that feels safe, Mm -hmm. especially for those who have had to move. Our human need for that sense of safety can somehow be tied to our spiritual need of safety. Hmm. Is God really for us? And God kept showing up. Back to what Dave was talking about. We would like to have God in some safe place where we could just go when it suited us Hmm. (laughs) rather than the imminence of God always with us. One of the problems that I sometimes pose to my environmental studies students is if you had to dam up the Mississippi River, how would you do it? And when they think about this, you know, what do you do? You build a great big concrete and steel structure at the mouth of the Mississippi in New Orleans or something like that. The fact is, no matter how big a dam you make, it will fail. Cannot work. But you know what you can do? You can create good habitat for beavers in Minnesota. You can allow them to thrive as they want to thrive in the place where they want to thrive. And when you do, they will restore the habitat. They will make things grow. They will deepen the soil. They will make everything else around them thrive. And I don't mean to compare people to beavers. You know, there's a parallel there anyway. And that is that when you let people thrive and love as they want to love, all of our siblings are people of goodwill who will do good things for their neighbors if given the chance. But if we consistently deprive them of the things that they need in order to love their neighbors as themselves, it should not surprise us if they leave. And it might very well be that the thing that is making them leave is love. I'm sorry, here I am hanging out with a bunch of clergy and I'm the one giving the sermons. (laughs) 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 When Shaniko asked that question, I was reminded of this past week where we had. 16 degrees above normal temperatures here. And uh, it's a year of, you know, droughts happen. 
and it's a year of sort of a drought that wasn't supposed to be <laughs> around here, plus those 16 plus degrees above normal. And one day when I was looking at that, I was like, wow, I wonder what that looks like other places. Is that true, you know, around other places? And so I zoomed out on my weather app and looked and, you know, it is, it assigns colors, you know, red for it's really, really, really hot and dry and, you know, blue if there's a little rain or something like that. And I zoomed out and I looked around the world and it was sort of true almost everywhere uh, because, of course, climate change. But when I zoomed out and I looked, most continents had areas that looked um, green here and there, red some places, very small places, Africa, the entire continent, and some places were such a dark, deep color of this is way too hot and way too dry. As you all know, that one of the major causes of war throughout history, and including now, is access to water. Hmm. And it is in that area of the world, that continent, and up above it, the Middle East was very similar looking, that we see a great deal, even more movement of people trying to find access to a good life for their family and having to leave the places that they may have been for centuries because they can no longer sustain life. As I thought about that, and then I looked at this reading, you know, near the end of it, it says, and I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more, and evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly. From that time, I appointed judges, and I will give you rest from all your enemies is the thing that I want to look at, and the Lord will make you a house. And so, yeah, you don't need to make me a house, David, but I will make a place for you. And then there's all this kingly language that Nathan put around it to make David feel good about himself. But, <laughs> there, was, <laughs> but there was also this piece of someone who had been a soldier literally all their lives. I think we forget about that. But David, as misogynistic as he was and all of the other things, is that part of it is that he was a soldier. And he started very young. You know, we look at the time that he fought Goliath and he was just a kid, basically entering into that conflict and thinking it an honorable and holy thing to do for his people. And, and so now we see him sort of near the middle end of his life and he is traumatized and he just is tired of it and he wants this house. And because of his often misguided, but still tremendous faith in God. He also wants God to have a break and a house. And so just like we don't paint one another or the rest of our world with a broad brush, maybe we shouldn't do it you know, uh, to David either. I've watched people who have been at war even for a few years of their lives, and they, they can't imagine anything else but they want to. And climate change has done that to our whole world. Hmm. That's where we need to add love, right? Yes. Right. And Aaron, when you talk about that, I think that this is helpful to keep in mind when we're thinking about our neighbors and our families who have views that we think of as reprehensible too. Hmm. It's important for us to imagine good intent. As hard as that can be, even the people who are the, the folks who are going to stare the facts in the face and deny that there's climate change, who are going to look at the immigrant, the refugee, and accuse them of injustice rather than recognizing that they're people who have suffered injustice. It might just be that the people that we find or whose views we find reprehensible, those views themselves might be rooted in some kind of love. It might be in a very imperfect love, a very small love, but love is, as we have said already, many, many different things in many different ways. It might be that each one of us, even those with whom we disagree most strenuously, have some glimpse of love that we have not yet seen. I was thinking about where it says, God says, I'll point a place for people of Israel and we'll plant them. And I was thinking about what it means to be planted. And 
I could see that going all sorts of metaphors with planted and where you grow. And I wonder if our church sometimes has so focused on the planting, uh, not the planting of churches, but the planting of our butts in the pews <laughs> that we haven't been growing out of the buildings. <laughs> and maybe we need to be thinking about how are we, how are we growing out of the building? Let me shift over to the gospel. This is the Annunciation. And Luke has the longest version of this. Matthew just sort of like mentions it just a little bit, but the others don't. What does the Annunciation mean to you? Or maybe what do you see out of it? And why might only Luke be the one who gives it this long justification or long bit? One of the things that often stands out to me about this passage is actually something that's not quite included in this, but comes right before it. Mary and Zechariah ask almost identical questions, but they get very different responses. You know, Mary says, how can this be since I am a virgin? And that question strikes me as being a question that is, it's full of wonder, probably some terror as well, but full of wonder. And Zechariah asks, how can I be sure of this since I'm an old man and my wife is old too? I mean, both of them are wondering, like, how is this possible? Hmm. Or the spirit with which they ask is quite different. And I really, maybe I'm just imagining, but I like to imagine Mary having this moment of saying, wow, this is terrifying, but really cool. Tell me more. In this Lucan gospel, Mary was much perplexed by his words. Now, the angel, of course, says, don't be afraid. It doesn't say that Mary was afraid. It says she was perplexed, confused, maybe a little disoriented. That is not the same as afraid. Hmm. And so I'm curious about that, perhaps because every other person who had an encounter with an angel was afraid. There was this expectation that Mary was. And so I wonder about her capacity for wonder rather than terror. And I love that you brought that up, that the response, we have this ingenue and we have this grizzled old man, right? And their worldviews. And so their responses to God's messenger. And I wonder how that is with us. When do we respond to the whispers of the spirit like a grizzled old man rather than like an ingenue? with expectation and hope and love. Sometimes I think we hear new stuff and and we're always, are we going to react from a place of fear or are we going to act from a place of love? And we have those two choices, right? That we get to think about and how we react. So do you think God plays favorites? I always wondered that when I read this because it said that God favored Mary. Does God play favorites? Yes. You, Shaniqua, are God's favorite. Absolutely. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) And Aaron, you are absolutely God's favorite. And when God opens God's wallet, God shows everyone Dave's picture as God's favorite. We forget when we look at one another and when we look in the mirror, how much all of God's creation is favored by God. Well, also, sometimes when I look at this passage, I think, how many other people did Gabriel go to that said, uh uh-uh, this is not going to happen? Oh. (laughs) Because she had a choice. Hard pass. Mm -hmm. And I always wonder, you know, were there others? Uh, And so Gabriel, like a good marketing exec, says... have won the prize you Mary (laughs) and she was much perplexed Mm -hmm. yeah that that is an interesting turn of phrase isn't it and they're perplexed and what I wonder about it is is there a mistake in the translation Mm. (laughs) right so often there is the thing I kind of uh, loved about this gospel is the overshadowing of Mary. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her. It made me think of uh, the creation story where Adam is put into a state of sleep. You know, and I always think about it's dark and it's quiet and it's 
lovely and you're lulled into sleep and when you wake up there's this creation but it made me think about that and the breath of god do you know one of the things about mary being a favored one mary was a nobody right i mean elizabeth married to a priest right but mary really a nobody okay her betrothed was kind of a somebody right in the line of david but not mary and so isn't that just God's way? Mm. Those who seem to be powerless, seem to be unimportant, are the prayer warriors, are those small people, those little people who speak these truths and you go, oh my gosh, that is like a sermon, right? Mm -hmm. The purity of their love and their presence and their attention is so divine. And they are, according to society, at least white society, not important. How do you think the story would be different if Mary wasn't a virgin? Do you think it would still be the same story? I've often wondered that. Well, there's one way in which we already have a comparison in Elizabeth. Since weirgo, the word that we translate or we take, make as virgin, just means a young woman with the understanding that it means somebody who is not yet married. So already Luke has anticipated the question. We've made this idea of a woman who can be a mother and have zero sexuality, hmm. right? It's an impossible person to attain to be. Do you know, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, right? I mean, it appears to me as a femme presenting individual that this has led to a fair amount of oppression and has been a way of not seeing anything feminine as holy. Hmm. Except this one, right? This one perfect. And then everybody else is going to fall short. I think the church those who have spoken for the church have done a disservice to the image of God by just this one woman in blue and the rest, not so much. Hmm. Though at Jesus's time, hmm, that's not actually the way it worked. How would you respond if an angel delivered this message or something just as difficult to you? <laughs> that would be my reaction. <laughs> Like Sarah, laugh, I would laugh because <laughs> that's over. <laughs> and I am keenly aware of how ridiculous God is in my eyes, right? We have ideas and we have visions and then God's like, yeah, right. I wonder sometimes if I would recognize it as an angel. Mm. I mean, some of us have apparently entertained angels unawares. That man who was walking down the street carrying his possessions on his back and whose smell I imagined, was that one of God's messengers? Hmm. I don't know what to make of angels, but one of the things that we see the church doing with the idea of angels and all of the other intelligences as they become known in the Middle Ages, the angels and archangels and the cherubim and seraphim and the thrones, principalities, powers, etc., is to imagine the universe being full of God's grandeur, as Gerard Manley Hopkins puts it, that there's no part of the universe that is empty. There's no empty space. There's nothing that is devoid of the love of God. There's no place where there is no messenger of God. Each of those things that I've named, angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim are plural. There's many of them, each of them in its own sphere. You know, we talk of the music of the spheres. Each of them comes to be associated with parts of creation, one of the planets with the stars, with the moon and so on. Each of them is associated with a metal. It's imagined that God is this king up high who speaks to God's next in command, who speaks in the next in command and so on. And, and that the messages find their way down and cause things to happen here on the world. One of the downsides of that, of course, is that we start to try to look at the spheres and imagine that we can anticipate what God is going to do. Astrology, we look at the skies and think if we can just get the jump on God, we can figure out how to beat the market or 
defeat whatever God is trying to do. <laughs> in a sense, I mean, like we celebrate our intelligence over the plans of God. And then we forget that we have the privilege of looking up and seeing these spheres above us. And we have the privilege of being in this place that is so shot through with different kinds of love. One of the other things that we forget in the medieval church knew this is that each of those spheres is associated with a gender as well. And there's more than two of them. There are two that are very near us that we think of as the genders that we most readily see. But if we can see the genders of what we, that we associate with Mars and Venus, what gender is associated with Jupiter, with Mercury, Saturn, with the stars, the firmament itself? What gender is associated with God? You know, at the beginning of the book of Job, we know that the sons are named, they have inheritance, uh, and the daughters, when they want to party, they go to their brother's houses. The end of the book of Job, it's the daughters who are named, hmm. and the daughters receive an equal inheritance. And what's happened in between? The only thing I can think of is what Job says, that he's seen the face of God. And maybe it didn't have a beard. Mm. Maybe he saw something there that said, oh, I've misunderstood the place of my daughters in this world. We hear in the New Testament that a woman is to learn and quietness and full submission. And then we take this and say, well, yeah, that means that women should not speak. But we know that in that Greek culture that is being addressed, only boys have gone to school and the boys have all learned that if you go to school, learn in quietness and full submission. What it means is, hey, you, this culture that has thought only one gender gets this favoritism of God, only one gender gets to receive the message of God, you're mistaken because God has appeared to Elizabeth. God has appeared to Mary. Who was the first missionary Jesus sent out? Who were the first ones to receive the news that Jesus was raised from the dead. Mm -hmm. All of these people in your congregation, the men, the women, every gender that might be represented there, every person that might be re represented there is equally a recipient of the love and the favor of God. And every one of them should learn in quietness and full submission. The women, by the way, don't know that yet because their culture has deprived them of that. So it's your job as the church to teach them that even though their culture has said no, Christ says yes. Sorry, this is the downside of inviting a classics professor to these. Oh, no, no, you, you sounded just like some of my seminary professors. So that was very good. I was, oh, I was enjoying it. I was like, oh, yeah, that sounded just like Dan J.S. and the, some of the Jesuits. And I was like, that's awesome. So what tips do you have for preaching Advent for? I have two thoughts. First, a verb from Spanish, esperar. We began by talking about hope. Esperar in Spanish means both to hope and to wait. No distinction between them. That in waiting, there is hope. Hmm. The second is kind of related to that. And that is, I just remember what it was like to be a child in Advent and that sense of waiting for the gifts to come and waiting for the food to come and all, you know, all the things that children and the child in me still waits for and in Advent and in Christmas. What if we were to imagine as we prepare for Advent, our whole church as a Christmas tree, beautiful things hidden beneath it and in the branches waiting to be unwrapped. Mm. What if everyone who walks in the doors of our church is a beautiful gift waiting to be unwrapped. Perhaps not ours to unwrap, but nevertheless a gift. Something whose beauty and wonder we perhaps have never glimpsed. Beautiful. I love that. And the fact is the wrapping changes. Mm. The wrapping may be tossed away, but the gift remains. Mm. Right? Mm. And that is so helpful. I just sort of plan to return to what we talked about in the very beginning and look at what's going on that week. That's really important. How far will people be embedded in their fears and their worries 
have a lot of people that are just feeling this subliminal level of anxiousness right now. And Advent 4, Advent 3, Advent 1, Advent 2, you know, they all come together. I mean, it's not, I don't just preach love on 4. I add in the peace and the hope and the joy. It's all one. You know, we just have that discrete amount of time to do it. But how do all of the other Sundays build on it? And how do we continue to help people through what they're going through? and into a life of faith where they can feel at peace no matter what, especially when we look at how people who are going through the absolute worst tend to be the people who are the most peaceful. Hmm. They're having a hard time, and they tend to comfort the other people around them. And then what you have there is that core of your faith and the core of the people that surround you that give you the strength that you need the stories of Christ that remind you that through it all and through everything that they were going through at that time, they found hope in that unity and that strength together in saying, you know, we are not going to be what's outside of us and causing us this anxiety. We are not, we're not going to add to it and we're going to help each other through it because in the end we realize and we know that that's where we feel peaceful. And you know you do when you're in those holy places that we have to make because we need a touchstone. You feel calmer in your heart. And so how do you hold on to that and carry it through? And so in Advent 4 is, you know, some some of it's like, you know, in about three hours, (laughs) (laughs) we're going to celebrate this new life that continues to give life to the world now. I think one of the things that's so helpful is in the Northern Hemisphere because it's so dark, right? It's so dark at this time. The days are are very short and remembering that at the time anticipating Christ's birth, it was pretty dark. It was pretty dark world. The Roman foot on the people's necks pretty severe. And yet God, God shows up, particularly for those who are struggling because of isolation, recent loss, so they're in grief, just change of circumstance that can be so disorienting for folks. The promise of the light and anticipating the light, waiting, like you said, Dave, the wait and the hope that is one in the same. To me, it's the physical manifestation, right? Just like the smells and the bells, whether you are burning candles or actually baking cookies, right? It's the smells of a season. It's the smells and the feeling and the whole embodiment of what came before and also what we're hoping for in the future. But at the same time, I love the winter season. And I love it when it's cloudy and it's dark. And when I am in grief or in pain, I want it to be dark Mm. so I can rest. I don't want the glaring sunlight shining in my eyes and making me squint because I'm already hurting. I want that time of renewal. And I think too of the other physical manifestation of a time of darkness is that when you are in the womb, Mm-hmm. Christ was in the womb. It's dark and warm and comfortable. And, and you're gathering together all of your energy because it's only in that kind of environment that we can really, really regather our energy and build it up so that we can burst forth into the next part of the day. You know, and God made it darkness and light. And we hear darkness is the start of the day, not light. Darkness and light, and it was the first day. You know, and there's this beautiful rest time as you await the coming of a child or as you await the time to be born uh, into the world. Well, maybe that's a good reminder for us that uh, when we look out at the people in our congregations, that any one of them might be in a different season of life Hmm. and that 
young woman might be the next Mary and that older woman, that auntie, that grandmother might be the next Elizabeth, that there might be a David or any one of these people could be remembered as a saint someday. Hmm. I think the challenge for us as I teach, as we preach, is to remember that God is doing many different things in many different lives. And we get the privilege of being a little part of that and sharing these scriptures and this liturgy at this time. We hope that God will do many good things in many different lives. I was thinking about, I know we didn't mention it this time, but I know you all implicitly mentioned it without it, but like thinking about doing a blue Christmas or the longest night services for folks and then preaching, if we're going to preach on Second Samuel, I love this idea of letting go and let God. And I think people need to hear that, especially that time, because everyone's going to be anxious about what they're cooking and is the turkey going to get burnt or the ham, you know, all those kind of things. And then what needs to be planted, then what needs to grow and that we don't need to be planted in the pew. We need to be planted, in other words, having roots. And I could think about that, maybe thinking about a metaphor of a Christmas tree, you know, if you chop it down, you bring it and you put it in water, it doesn't live very long, right? But if you have time to develop the roots and plant it so it's secure, then when the winds of adversity blow, you can have a place. I'm so glad they don't show the video of this because my hand's like waving all over. But like, they have, you know, the, when the winds of adversity blow, the tree will, will hold up. Um, and if you're preaching on Luke, I was thinking about the reacting out of love versus fear and how we might respond. And then kind of, David, what you said about like, what angels might we need to listen to that we aren't hearing? And what angels are coming to us. So what is our call? What are we have to birth? It might not be a baby, but what kind of do we have to birth in our ministry or in our church mm -hmm. or in the congregation? Thank you so much for being willing to be guests on the podcast and share your wisdom and your thoughts and your stories. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Shanika. Thanks. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit EpiscopalChurch.org forward slash Beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Aaron, David, and Michelle. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you experience love today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. For 100 years, the generous donations of Episcopalians and supporters to the Good Friday offering have helped the Christian presence in the land of the Holy One to be a vital and effective force for peace and understanding among all of God's children. A lifeline of hope in times of genuine need in years past, the Good Friday offering continues to support churches, medical programs, and schools today. Now more than ever, we celebrate the centennial of this historic fund. Your support is needed. Give online at iam.ec slash Good Friday Offering or text GFO to 91999. The Good Friday Offering, celebrating a century of gifts and rejoicing in 2,000 years of good news.